Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Last week, we looked at uncovering the meaning and history of sustainability. But this week, we're looking at what's happening on the ground, what we're currently doing to work towards a more sustainable future. From discovering coral in mangroves in New Caledonia. To looking at how we're going to feed more and more mouths in Sydney while running out of land to grow produce on. But up first, something you might be a bit more familiar with. Well, it only lasts 60 minutes, but it reaches more than 170 countries around the world. I'm talking about Earth Hour, and it's coming up on Saturday the 19th of March. People all around the globe will turn off their lights for an hour in a stand against climate change. But it's coming into its 10th year, and people are asking a lot of questions. Is 60 minutes long enough? How come my neighbours didn't turn off their lights? Why has that building got all its lights on? Well, one building that is switching off for Earth Hour is the UTS Haberfield Rowing Club, who are hosting a candlelit dinner. I caught up with the general manager of the club, Damien Phelps. Basically, we're going to, we're going to turn all of our lights off uh, to the maximum that we possibly can, uh, still operating the club uh, in a safe and uh, operable manner. We will be receiving uh, special candles uh, from Asheville Council that will go out onto all the tables that, where we have set up for our clients for the evening. Weather permitting, of course, we're going to set up as many people as we can out on the deck of the club. We are organising a sustainable dinner for the evening, uh, focusing on organic uh, food and beverages and uh, with a main of ethically farmed salmon from Tasmania. As well as the food, the club wants to showcase a number of its sustainable features on the night. Even including a rainwater tank that's built into the club for the washing of the athletes' boats to conserve water. Um, We use a naturalised ventilation system to maximise general weather. And then it is boosted by a uh, sustainable air conditioning system that uh, uses uh, the facilities that we have to cool the air down. For Damien, it's more than a 60-minute lights out. And they're hoping people who come can take something from that. By doing an event like this, we could actually not trap people, but uh, make other people aware that aren't already aware of what's going on. And having what we're offering and having such a beautiful presentation of what we are offering and making it a real highlight of the evening, then it will make them see that this is possible and it is a, a viable scheme and it is something that it will raise awareness going forward for the Earth Hour opportunity. Damien Phelps, General Manager of the UTS Haberfield Rowing Club. For the most part, people are switched on about switching off. In 2014, more than 7 million people turned off their lights during Earth Hour in Australia alone. That's nearly a third of the population. But that doesn't mean we've found a solution. Here's Sam Webb, manager of Earth Hour Australia. To me, Earth Hour is really important because while there is a whole lot of great work going on in the environmental movement and around climate change in particular, Earth Hour is unique in it has such broad reach and such broad appeal. It talks to everyday Australians from all walks of life, 
people who wouldn't normally consider themselves to be greenies or environmentalists and you know maybe they're not going to come to a, a protest or even sign a petition they have sort of different lives that kind of thing but they participate in earth hour and for that you know one hour or one day a year it's a time for everyone to stop and think about climate change and how it is affecting our lives and for me earth hour is a really strong way to talk to you know different types of people um, about an issue which affects everyone there are many who are thinking of ways to reduce their energy output outside the earth hour 60 minutes more and more people are moving off the grid environmental groups are pushing for renewable energy solutions, and businesses are figuring out ways to make themselves more energy efficient. So with so many thinking outside the electricity box, is Earth Hour still relevant? Here's David Waller from the UTS Business School. Earth Hour is still a symbol, and it's relevant as a symbol to, to remind us. What it actually does, I know that there's criticism saying that people turning off lights for that amount of time is irrelevant, but it's still the symbol of stopping, thinking, recognising that the environment's important. And seeing that Earth Hour has even changed its logo to be 60 plus, it's saying it's more than the 60 minutes. But that 60 minutes is still an important symbol. And it's now up to Earth Hour to really push that so it'll be on top of people's mind. And with something like climate change constantly flushing in and out of the media, it's important to find ways to keep people engaged. Definitely there is a a compassion fatigue that you can get aware out of so many different types of messages. But with certain people, it it might be what's relevant to, to them at the time. Coal seam gas is a really important issue for people on the North Coast. So they would see that as being more important. Those that live in North Queensland are very concerned about the Great Barrier Reef. There might be some that might be interested in whales and whale migration. Again, it's related to to climate change, but there might be particular things that people become interested in depending on their geography. But as David says, it also speaks to the bigger players at hand here and their attitude towards climate change. There's been involvement not just of individuals and individual households, but of community, getting community groups together, but getting corporate businesses, getting iconic buildings to have their lights turned off. You'd think for the big businesses, It's saving them money, but it's also getting everyone within the organisation to to know that their their company actually thinks about the environment. They're doing something good, and it's part of spreading goodwill within the organisation, but also outside the organisation. So you think that a lot of companies should be on board with this. David Waller, Senior Lecturer in the UTS Business School. For Sam Webb from Earth Hour... It's now about thinking for the future. I asked her where she hoped we would be for Earth Hour's 20th birthday. I would love to see in 10 years' time a complete uh, reinvention of the way we use energy and I think that would be a fantastic thing. Uh, However, with action on climate change, this is never going to be an issue which we can kind of fix quickly and, and forget about. We do have individuals taking action. We do have this strong desire within the community 
to act on climate change and was sadly not seeing strong enough leadership um, from our government. So, you know, we had a really uh, great piece of news from Paris in December last year with the new global climate change agreement. And now we just need to see Australian leaders really taking that on board and putting strong policies in place to transition us away from dirty fossil fuels like coal and oil and gas and transition Australia onto clean, renewable energy. And for their 10th year, Earth Hour are asking one person in particular to turn off their lights. This year we'll be asking uh, our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, to see if he's going to switch off his lights for Earth Hour. So we know he's said some good things in the past about wanting to act on climate change, but uh, since he's come into power, we really haven't seen anything very different um, from what we were seeing before. So hopefully we'll uh, bring it to his attention, get Mr Turnbull to switch off for Earth Hour as a sign that he is committed to transitioning Australia to clean, renewable energy. Sam Webb, manager of Earth Hour, ending that story. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. Right now, we're going snorkelling in a coral reef in New Caledonia. So the water temperature, this is the amazing thing. I mean, when we went in there for the first time, it was between 32 and 33 degrees. Don't forget to wear your wetsuit. It's really hot, and you have to have that trade-off. You know, do you wear do do you wear your um, your wetsuit and just, I suppose, put up with the warm waters, or do you uh, avoid the wetsuit? But there's so many things that will sting you in there, or you know. Oh yeah! Did I mention all the things that can kill you? We have big sharks and we have um, sea snakes in New Caledonia, but but they're risks that are a lot easier to manage for. So. Well, wait a minute. What sort of reef is this? I thought coral reefs couldn't survive in hot temperatures. Well, when I said coral reef, I actually meant extreme coral reef. Hi, I'm David Suggett, and I'm team leader of the coral group at UTS. And my research focus, one of which is looking at corals in extreme environments. David's fascination with extreme corals started a couple of years back. Uh, it, it actually first started in the Seychelles, uh, where some local rangers, we were, we were working on a coral reef and climate change project. And we were looking at a turbid reef and, and trying to understand how corals could survive under really low light conditions. And one of the local rangers said, why don't you have a look in the mangroves? I'm sure we've seen some corals in there. And I kind of t- turned to a colleague and, and we kind of both looked very sceptically at each other thinking, oh, I don't think that's likely. Um, plus, we didn't fancy the idea of splashing around in mangroves. But we thought, OK, well, it's an important thing to chase up. These guys have got really important local knowledge. They know the environment much better than we do. So we took a risk, had a look, and we were absolutely blown away by, by what we've seen. Fast forward to this year, and David is splashing around in the mangroves of New Caledonia. So we've just returned from uh, New Caledonia, and we were exploring a new reef system off of the eastern coast. And normally we work on the Outer Barrier Reef. So just like Australia, New Caledonia um, as an island is surrounded by a barrier reef. And then it has a series of inner reefs, what we would call a back reef or a fringing reef, that borders the land. So what David is saying is that there are two types of coral reefs. There are the ones we think of with the pristine blue waters, gorgeous, vibrant colours, a rainbow of coral. But then there are also the mangrove reefs that border them. 
Most of these backwaters and uh, fringing reefs are dominated by mangrove waters, and mangroves are typically brown, muddy, murky, not a lot of light penetration. And actually, if you try and look uh, at what's on the bottom from the surface of those waters, you don't really see an awful lot. And that's part of the reason these systems have been overlooked. But if you're brave enough to um, put your wetsuit and your shark shield on and go and have a little look in these systems, actually there's amazing biodiversity can open up in front of your eyes. Most of the research to date has been on the pretty corals, but you should never judge a book by its cover, as David and his team have discovered. Once you're in those mangrove systems, I guess, you know, as soon as you put your head beneath the surface, beneath that pond scum, um, actually the world opens up. And and we were absolutely astounded when we did this for the first time in in New Caledonia, is that the very first thing that, that greeted us was just this vast carpet of these branching corals. Not only that. You see fish that you just see on the main reef. So we see um, beautiful, what, what we call banner fish. So they look very similar to the Moorish idols. Uh, we see the parrotfish, uh, angelfish, all of these things that also like to graze on corals. Not surprisingly found where we have all of these corals. <laughs> so similarly to harbouring the coral populations, it's not just that corals can survive there seems like the whole ecosystem, to some extent, is able to transition. So what David and his team are seeing is corals that are surviving under future conditions. And we're not just talking warm water either. They're also surviving in really quite acidic water. And that's the what we call the other um, CO2 problem. So as we have put more CO2 into the atmosphere, not only are our waters warming, but it's also gradually driving the pH of the seawater down. Now, again, our laboratory experiments over the past... 10 years have told us that uh, for many corals this is going to spell disaster. They're simply not going to be able to calcify and grow as well as they have been. But clearly in our acidic mangrove waters they're doing very well. So the fact that corals are surviving in mangrove waters that are well below pH 7.8 and at seawater temperatures that would typically drive coral bleaching on pristine reefs in the present day really tells us that the corals in mangroves seem to be able to tolerate conditions that we're expecting in the next 50 to 100 years. This is good news, I think. Well, yes and no. On one hand, the experiments science have done to pristine corals to date have been quite limited. The most popular type of experiments are we take corals from um, nature and we try to subject them to stresses indicative of the future that models tell us uh, um, are predicted. So Uh, A lot of investment has been spent on creating really state-of-the-art facilities to mimic these future climate conditions. Now, the main problem we have is because of funding constraints, those experiments at best can only ever run for months, maybe a year at best. So that gives us a very limited window to take corals from the environment and start stepping them up to future conditions. So it's a rate much faster than the conditions will actually change under climate conditions. But on the other hand... The corals found in mangroves may be completely different to what we see on the pristine reefs. We don't really know whether the coral populations in these mangroves are a a distinct genetically isolated community that's evolved over hundreds of years to survive in these conditions, or whether they represent a supply of corals coming continuously from the main reef and they just happen to be extremely physiologically plastic. And that's really the next line of our, our research and investigation is to try and answer that question. So we've spoken about New Caledonia. What about Australia? Will we find these mangrove reefs here? Well, let's just say extreme coral diving in New Caledonia ain't got nothing on extreme coral diving in Australia. 
I think there's an exceptionally good chance of finding them in Australia. So most of uh, tropical Australia uh, fringing reef is bordered by mangroves, and we just simply haven't explored Australia's um, habitat for corals yet. And actually, there's a good reason why we haven't done that. New Caledonia offered us um, a unique opportunity to look in the mangroves with a new collaboration, and actually it enabled us to do it in a relatively safe way. So New Caledonia doesn't come with a lot of the dangers that Australian mangroves have. So for example... Saltwater crocodiles, box jellyfish, all of these things that are looking to um, uh, hamper your efforts to investigate those, those habitats um, are not found in New Caledonia. Not only that, New Caledonia's reefs have less stress on them than ours. New Caledonia is very different from the Great Barrier Reef in one major sense, and that is it doesn't have all of the immediate localised stresses that the Great Barrier Reef has. Even though it looks very similar to the Great Barrier Reef in, in sort of a mini-scale, what it doesn't have is all of the intensive farming practice, um, pollution, eutrophication. So it gives us a real means to study the environment free from local stresses. And that's the other reason it's very difficult for us to say that main reefs will look exactly how our mangrove systems will look in the future because habitats, I should say habitats, entire ecosystems like the Great Barrier Reef are subjected to so many more pressures that really tip the balance. So the jury is still out on whether the Great Barrier Reef will be able to adapt or just bleach. Along with the stress our lifestyles put on the reef, David says we're not sure whether it's the pH or the temperature or something else entirely that'll determine the reefs of the future. That is, I mean, that is the, the magic question. If we, could, if we could answer that right now, we, we would be a long way towards um, managing for the future. And I guess... What we want to understand is whether it's the pH and the temperature alone in the mangroves um, that corals have acclimated to, or whether there's some other little ingredient in there that, that has given them the edge. And actually, we suspect that all of that organic matter in the mangroves enables them to upregulate their feeding and give them the extra energy they need to survive. So whether mangroves w give us that snapshot of how reefs will look in the future, the jury's out. I think there's a very strong indication now that corals can certainly um, persist under extreme conditions, but they might need some additional ingredients to get them there. But I think we can say there is a teeny weeny bit of hope for coral reefs. Well, that and we have a new sport. Are we likely to see a new adventure sport, extreme coral diving? <laughs> I'd like to think so. I think um, if we could run tours into the mangroves and we could have a lot, lot of people sign up, we'd be up for that. David Suggett, team leader of the Coral Group at UTS. You're tuned in to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3, a show that looks at creative solutions for a more sustainable planet. Now, a big thing that sticks out to me when I hear you say sustainable. Well, doing this show, I've been noticing more and more sustainable things, right? And uh, the thing that I've been thinking about this week is food. I've noticed I've become much more aware of how much food I'm wasting and how much food I'm eating, especially because I'm training for a triathlon at the moment, which means I'm eating more and more food. Well, when it comes to how much food there actually is... You're not the only one who's worried. The local source of where we get a lot of our produce from is a place called the Sydney Basin, but there are factors like our growing population. 
building more and more infrastructure. Exactly, which are putting us at risk of losing important land to grow our food on. So I spoke with Laura Wynn, who is a research consultant at the Institute of Sustainable Futures at UTS, about this issue. So at the moment, most of Sydney's fresh produce comes from outside of the basin, um, but we source around 20% of total food demand from within the basin. So 20% of the total food supply. Obviously, things like grains, for example, that are produced with broad-scale agriculture need to come from further afield. But we produce a lot of vegetables. We get a lot of our leafy greens and Asian green vegetables from within the basin. We also get around 40% of our eggs from the basin, a lot of poultry meat, as well as some stone fruit, but uh, mostly vegetables, eggs and poultry. So when we're talking about the basin, how far does this stretch around metropolitan Sydney? Where are we looking at? That's a good question. Um, it's There's no particular definition that's widely adopted. However, generally we're talking about up to the Hawkesbury River, um, down south to through Camden and Windjikaribbee, um, and out to the Blue Mountains. Why is it so important that we continue to grow produce within the Sydney Basin as opposed to import from elsewhere? There are a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, there's some fresh food that it's really important that we grow really close to market. So if you picture herbs and leafy greens, uh, a day or two after you buy them, they start to wilt and look pretty bad. That's because they need to be picked, sold and used within a matter of days or hours. So having those grown really close to market means we reduce food waste in that a lot less perishes before it's purchased um, and means that we can get those as fresh as possible. Another reason why it's good to have food production close to the city is resilience and sustainability and also food security. So we run the risk of becoming very vulnerable to external shocks such as fuel price rises or natural disasters. If we don't produce a lot of our food within the basin, we can become very vulnerable to, say, an increase in the price of petrol, uh, which would increase the price of transporting food into the basin. So we can insulate ourselves from a lot of those potential stresses and shocks of the future by making sure that we produce food within the basin. There's a number of things, though, when we're talking about this that put producing within the basin at risk. And one of the main things is that the population continues to grow and where are we going to kind of situate everyone? We can't just put them out where they don't have access to all of this. So how big does that issue of population growth play into continuing to source our food in a reasonable distance? That's a, it's a really big issue. So Sydney is growing at a very rapid rate. Uh, we expect to add another 1.6 million people to our population by 2031, which is a very large increase. Uh, we've experienced a lot of population growth over the last few decades as well, and that is already impacting in particular on peri-urban areas. So as our city has grown, we tend to have sprawled out into those peri-urban areas, which are the areas around the edges of our city. And that's where traditionally agriculture um, has taken place and food production has taken place in the city. So when we sprawl out onto those lands, when we convert them to housing land, we lose that production forever. And as we continue to grow, as we continue to accommodate uh, an extra 1.6 million people, we're going to see a continued loss of that. And the need to add roads and other infrastructure to support that new population means that more and more land is consumed for that. And as well as causing 
irreversible damage to these fertile lands or lands that we need to grow. For the people who are out there, for the farmers, this must have a huge strain on them as well. Yeah, that's right. So farmers in Australia are already facing some pretty difficult challenges. They have rising import costs and declining profits. They're facing a changing climate and unpredictable climate with regards to rainfall. But now they're also having to accommodate new neighbours and residential neighbours and agriculture don't go together too well. There's lots of noise and smells associated with agriculture that people who live in peri-urban areas don't often like and don't often expect. So we see a lot of land use conflicts arising between residential residents of peri-urban areas and farmers who wish to and who need to be able to operate their farm throughout the day from 4.30 a.m. in the morning till the end of the day. They might need to put some smelly fertilisers down to make sure that their crops grow quickly um, and often residential neighbours I don't like those smells and sounds. So what we're seeing then is local governments are forced to try and accommodate both neighbours and often uh, end up placing some pressures on farmers to change their activities and and often in a way that results in declining profitability for those farmers. Let's look at 10 years down the line if this is to continue or if we're to, you know, continue to sprawl out into these areas and what would happen to where we're sourcing our produce? Would we have to look elsewhere and what would that mean for the consumer? Yeah, so our modelling shows that we'll likely decline if we continue to sprawl in the same way that we have in the past and in the same way that we are planning to uh, through things like the Metropolitan Plan for Sydney. Uh, It looks like our uh, ability to meet the demand for food within the basin will decline from 20% to 6%. So, And that's probably a conservative estimate as well. So it could decline to less than that. So what that means is that we will only be able to supply 6% of the total demand for food from within the basin. Now, of course, that means we need to get food from elsewhere. Um, That's likely to be from areas in in northern Queensland, which are suitable for growing vegetables and other crops year round Um, but it's also going to mean we're more reliant on the areas of New South Wales that are going to become more vulnerable to to drought and climate variability as our climate changes Um, and we may also be more reliant on bringing food from overseas. Now of course bringing food those further distances has other implications it has costs in terms of Um, not only economic costs of of actually trucking or flying food a greater distance, but it has significant environmental costs associated both with food waste from spoilage uh, throughout transport, as well as the greenhouse gas emissions from transporting uh, either by road or air significant distances. How can we practically look at coming up with sustainable solutions to try and keep our food production within the Sydney Basin or what are you doing here at ISF to look at that? Some of the things that we are considering uh, include right to farm measures and the New South Wales government has just taken a great step in the right direction by introducing policy that intends to preserve and protect farmers right to farm on their land. So what that is about is trying to avoid those land use conflicts that arise as a result of residential neighbours living beside agriculture. At present, our planning system and our other and the other systems that are relevant don't tend to prioritise agriculture as a land use. And a huge importance is placed in New South Wales at the moment on jobs in the economy and housing, 
which of course are all important. But that does mean that often when decisions are being made about how to utilise a piece of land in future, agriculture drops to the bottom of the list. And, and we believe that we do need to prioritise agriculture as a land use in the basin. We need to recognise the important role that it plays in contributing to the city's sustainability and resilience. Um, and we need to find ways of protecting it. Other measures include valuing the total economic value of food production on that land. So at the moment, we tend to look at a simple economic valuation to compare which would be a, a better use of, of a piece of land. So at the moment, in an overheated housing market, residential land use often comes up as, that, as the best um, land use because that um, has a greater economic value. But what we are trying to do is say, well, if we valued all of the benefits that we get from having agriculture in the basin, such as a contribution to fresh air, to cooling the urban heat island, to supporting biodiversity in the basin, we might have a really different story there. We might actually see that agriculture might provide a greater suite of benefits than housing might. So what we are trying to do is provide some tools that might help the planning system to better compare different land uses to come up with a a more sustainable solution. That's Laura Wynn, research consultant at the Institute of Sustainable Futures. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Ellen Leibeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week. Thank you.